Welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderworth, the I, and I think you're interesting. And I have been trying to do this interview for, boy, as long as I've been a TV critic. This is one of those those people I've always wanted to talk to in the industry that I just, the timing has never worked out, despite the many times we've tried to make it happen. But it finally happened today. I'm talking to Jason Kadams. He's the guy who is behind some of my favorite TV shows, hopefully some of your favorite TV shows. His first job was writing on one of my favorite shows, My So-Called Life. His name is the credited writer for some of the best episodes of that show. He then went on to create a show that you've probably never heard of, but that I liked. It's called Relativity. It's about a couple in their 20s just sort of falling in love. And that was canceled after a season. He's then gone on to do all sorts of things. But the thing that you probably have heard of that is probably one of the best TV shows ever made, Friday Night Lights, he was the showrunner on that. He made five seasons of that show. And that show is just wonderful and beautiful and captures small town life and football and all this other stuff in ways that, you know, even if you're not interested in watching a show about football or watching a show about small town life, you will be drawn into it. Like it has that power over people. Since then, he's done everything from Parenthood to the sitcom about a boy. And now his new show is called Rise. It's about a high school drama department. It's on NBC. I've seen the first season. And if you are into high school drama, I think it's worth a watch. So we're going to talk to Jason. We're going to talk to him about Rise. We're going to talk to him about his career. We're going to talk to him about all sorts of things. If you are a TV fan or just a person who likes great writing, it'll be fun. So stick around. My guest this week is Jason Kadams. You may know him from Friday Night Lights, from Parenthood, from Roswell, from any number of things. His new show is Rise. It's on NBC on Tuesday nights. Jason, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I was talking to somebody else in the industry who I won't name because it was a private conversation, but they were talking about how when they broke in, like the big thing everybody was doing was writing plays because you broke in as a playwright. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about like that history of playwriting because right. now you're doing a show about a high school drama right. department. Yeah, yeah, like, how did those two things? How did that? Uh, how did that? How, the, how did that experience as a playwright inform this new show? Well, first of all, I started as a playwright. I graduated from Queens College in New York and immediately started writing plays and spent years mm-hmm. in New York, living that sort of um, struggling playwright life, and you know, doing small productions and plays, showcases, small productions of theater at theaters, and then. Got into writing television sort of as a stroke of luck, really, right. where Ed Zwick had read one of the plays that I had written that had gotten published in a small publication and called me up and brought me out to Los Angeles. And that was right when they were starting to work on My So-Called Life. And so My So-Called Life was the first job that I had as a writer in television. And it was, you know my sort of graduate school experience and it was an amazing experience you keep doing shows about teenagers like you seem Mm -hmm. to keep and some of that is like the industry is like well he's the guy who knows how to write teenagers but were you like were your plays about younger people were you always interested in those sorts of themes yeah some of the plays were focused on younger people but not necessarily always you know i don't really know exactly why it happened or or how that happened i do find that you know starting with my so-called life i discovered that it was really such an incredibly – it was such fertile ground to right. write about. Mm-hmm. It was such an incredible time to write about because, you know, you're writing about somebody's adolescence. You're writing about the moment where their lives are changing. Right. You know, over a short period of time, a few months, they can completely reinvent themselves right. where they make big mistakes. But you're sort of forgiven for the mistakes you made as as an adolescent because you're an adolescent. 
it's just a great time to write about. Also, you know, when you do a show and, you know, you hope that the show goes for, you know, three or four or five seasons, you know, that's also about the amount of time of where you really sort of evolve through adolescence. Yeah. If, if you have a show that gets to last that long, you really get to watch these people evolve and grow up. And I just find that really endlessly kind of, you know, fascinating and, and, and interesting. I did notice when I watched Rise, uh, I've watched the, the whole first season. When I watched it, in some of your older shows, it was kind of ambiguous how old the kids were in this show. You're like, they're all sophomores. <laughs> they're all kind of like, we're going to get three years out of them at least. Right. You know? <laughs> well, we had that thing in, in um, Friday Night Lights. We just kind of avoided the issue for as long as we could. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to that third season of Friday Night Lights, we realized with the writers, you know, we sort of had to make a decision, you know, were we going to just have these, you know, have the have this incredible cast where, the, where we're just going to keep them in high school for like eight years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or we were going to say, OK, this is the time when they're graduating. And when we sort of made the commitment to, OK, this whole season is going to be about graduating graduation. Yeah. And we were going to start to say goodbye to some of these characters. Um, as difficult as it was to do that, because I loved all, I loved those characters and I loved the actors that were playing those roles. It was an incredibly powerful thing to do because you got to tell the, the, that very real story of watching them move on and where they go and what's their, the next stage. And then it, of course, left this opening to sort of bring in new people and weirdly kind of reinvent the show in the fourth season. Right, right. Obviously, sometimes you work with actors who are in their 20s and are playing teens, but Mm -hmm. you're always watching people who are in a part of their lives who are growing up. You know, Mm -hmm. we're still growing up in our 20s, obviously. Right. How do you feel your responsibility is as a showrunner, as a producer, as a writer to create an environment for people who are still doing a lot of maturing? Like, how do you feel about, like, building that that safe, safe place for them? Well... The environment that you sort of foster on set is so critically important, both creatively to the show and to these lives of these, you know, young actors who are just getting started. Mm -hmm. It's also one of the most exciting parts of doing what I do. I watched, you know, this first season of Rise. Damon Gillespie, who plays Robbie, was a Broadway actor but never had done film or television. Mm -hmm. Ali E. Cravalho, who plays Lillette was the voice of Moana, but never acted on stage or screen before. Watching their evolution, even over this 10 episodes, watching them grow as actors was amazing. You know, um, Ali was 16 when she Mm. shot the pilot and through most of the first season. She turned 17 right at the end of the first season. And, you know, there's a scene with her and her mom later in the season where they have this blowout argument. And I was watching her do that scene and I was just stunned Mm. at how sort of deep she went and how honest it was. Not that she wasn't great from the beginning, but it was like, you know, it sort of, it went from having those sort of great instincts to really over a period of a few months, really sort of developing her craft and being in a place where she was really able to do great work. And I think that is, um, you know, a combination of in one way, being lucky to be working with these incredible young actors, but it's also creating an environment for them to be free, for them to feel like they're they're in like a place where they can try stuff and you know and feel they're in a place that they can be free to like 
you know, grow. And you're obviously really good at casting teenagers. <laughs> obviously, you didn't like cast my so-called life, but that's kind of for me ground zero for like realistic teenagers on television. And your work has really carried that forward. You know, Friday Night Lights, Rise, all these shows have had, I want to say people who look like real teenagers, mm. like even if they're 25, you know, they look like they're, they could be a real teenager somewhere. Whereas, you know, sort of the, the stereotype we have of TV teenagers is they're very pretty. They're white. They're usually like 28 years old. They're like fashion models who are right. trying out television. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with sort of aspirational teenagerhood, but what do you look for in casting? Like, how are you finding these really interesting, really real, really diverse casts of, of, of teens? Right. I mean, it's exactly what you said. I'm looking for people that feel real to me. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for people that feel like when they're, you know, doing the part that they're not playing that person, but that they are that person. So you're sort of looking for qualities that feel um, you know, authentic or feel real. Um, I'm looking for enough of a sense of diversity. I'm not just talking about diversity in terms of ethnicity, and, and but also just in terms of the you know how people look. So overall, that you get a, a sense of when you look at that group of people, when you look at that ensemble of actors on the stage. Oh, that feels like a you know a high school drama troupe. Yeah. Well, we have we have a clip of Rise. Yeah, I had this vision that. Uh theater at Stanton High School could be different. And I I believe it can be. I believe in all of you. But I needed to do it in baby steps. I I, I needed to play nice one step at a time. And as you all know, I I didn't take it one step at a time. It was my mistake. Live and learn. But you've all brought me so much the last few weeks. I I don't think I'll ever be the same. I really don't. So... The show will be Pirates of Penzance. Miss Wolf will be your esteemed director. And I will be there in the front row at opening night, cheering you all on. I love you all. So that's from the end of the first episode of the show. Uh, A lot happens in that first episode. And I'm wondering, what have you learned about crafting a pilot over the years? Because I think your first show you created, Relativity. Yes went to air in 1996. So right. you have some experience with this. What have you learned about crafting a pilot that you brought to Rise? I feel with Rise, it's a weird thing about the show. I feel like everything has led to the show for me. It's like there are so many elements that I've drawn on from previous work, from my so-called life and Friday Nights and Parenthood, so much about, as you were talking about, the adolescence, but also about you know stories about family and, and parenting. And that's that's a big part of the show you know, as well. And I think, like, one of the things that I think about in sort of launching a show and writing – pilots are so hard to do. You know, they're so hard to write. Um, You know, you have to accomplish so much and you have – especially on a broadcast show, really in a very short period of time. So what I really try to focus on is to to be very aggressive in terms of how many – how much I try to introduce – the beauty of, to me, of shows like Friday Night Lights and Parenthood and Rise it is the sort of like the large ensemble nature of it. That even though Lou is at the center of that story, of, of the pilot story and, and of the show in a way, it's really, it really is a true ensemble. You know, mm. it depends on and relies on caring as much about Lillette and Simon and, and Robbie and all of these and Michael and all these other characters as you do in Lou. I mean, that, that's my hope for it. Right. So I really want to, in in the pilot, 
put all of that forth, you know, really start to introduce these people, go into their homes and and see them. It's not really necessarily the way I think anybody would sort of maybe think to approach it. But I like to put a lot out there in the pilot. Sometimes even if it might seem like, oh, that's a lot of people to track. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. I feel like it pays off. And what, I, what I've seen consistently in all of those shows, Friday Night Lights, Parenthood and Rise, is you're sort of intrigued and hopefully from the very beginning. But as you get two, three, four, five episodes into it, it really starts to gel right. because all these characters that you only started to know in the first couple of episodes, you're really starting to get more and more invested in. And it sort of, I think, I think it sort of pays great dividends. Right, that, that, right. So that's what I really tried to do with, with Rise as oh, well. You might have noticed, recognized the voice of the person playing Lou, who's Josh Radner, uh, probably best known for How I Met Your Mother, uh, but now also on Rise. He's made movies of his own. He's uh, done a lot of interesting things. So maybe you know him from other places. Um, one of the things I like is that, as you heard in that clip, it sounds like he's been fired or you know removed, and you resolve that like five minutes later. Right, like right. I was worried you were going to drag that out for right. like half a season, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't. Uh, but Lou has prompted a lot of discussion, let's say, uh, and I want to I kind of talk about the discussion, but in a roundabout way. So mm-hmm. I want to start with like, when this show was announced, a lot of people saw it as like, oh, it's going to be Friday Night Lights, but crossed with Glee. And like, mm-hmm. That got people very excited. And I'm wondering when you approach that question of like, how are we going to make a show about a high school drama department? The relationship between a director and an actor strikes me as different in some interesting ways from the relationship between a coach and a player. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering like what what you realized about that over the course of writing season one or like thinking about the show. First of all, I did see a sort of connective tissue between Friday Night Lights and, and Rise and, mm-hmm. in, uh, it, you know, it was drama instead of football. Um, it leaned into this uh, really telling a story about a community, about a small town. And I was excited to do that with Rise and and wanted to draw from Friday Night Lights to do it. But in terms of like this, the similarities and differences between, you know, sort of the observing a football coach and, and a drama teacher, you know, one of the great advantages of now doing a show where there's a, a drama teacher is – you have all kinds of students, right? right. There's, there's, there's girls and boys. There's people of all types. And um, there are athletes as, as well as somebody who would never be an athlete, right? And that's something that I found to be very great and from a storytelling point of view because right. you, you know, you, in Friday Night Lights, we always had to struggle to figure out, okay, how, do we, how does Tyra or Lila or how do they get, you know, a storyline when they're not the football players, you know? Mm-hmm. In this case – Many of the students that we're observing are sort of part of this troop, and so you can sort of write toward simultaneously what's happening in their lives and uh, what's happening to them within that structure of, of, of being part of the show. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like the many shows of our guests this week, Jason Kadams. You could watch Friday Night Lights or Parenthood or his new show, Rise. You could watch those right now if you wanted to, on demand. But... Could you mail a full cast photo from one of the shows to your friend all the way across the country on demand? Well, that's the question I'm going to answer for you, because if you're still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages, there's another way you could be doing it. At three in the morning, four in the morning, when you just don't feel like leaving the house because it's a gray day, you can get postage on demand 
with Stamps.com. Stamps.com lets you access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer, and the mail carrier picks it up. You click, print, mail, and you're done. It couldn't be easier. So Stamps.com is the way to send your important letters, your important packages, your merchandise, everything like that. So, listen, if you want to try out Stamps.com, and you know what? I think you should, because who doesn't want on-demand postage, you can use the code INTERESTING for the special offer, which includes up to $55 of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, you click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and you know the code. We just said it. Type in INTERESTING. Stamps.com, radio microphone, INTERESTING. Send that cast photo in the middle of the night to your heart's content. On-demand postage, Stamps.com. Let's do this. When you approached writing Lou, how did you uh, see him as a different character from some of the other teacher or coach or leader characters you've written in the past? And just here's an example that I sort of thought of is Lou has to be like more stubborn than Mm -hmm. like a coach Taylor, because coach Taylor's going to have the resources he needs as long as he keeps winning. And Lou is not like, so he has to keep kind of butting his head against the wall and that can make him uh, harder to deal with for some of these other characters. Right. What I like about the character of Lou is what drives him to take over this theater program at the beginning comes from this personal place. It comes from a place where he has been like teaching in the school for 16 years and feels like he's banging his head against the wall. He feels like, you know, he's, he's, he's in a town where the steel mill closed down. They have economic strife. They have a lot of unemployment. There's a high dropout rate, all this stuff. And he feels like, you know, he's teaching English. Nobody's listening to what he's saying. And he just feels like driven to do something because of this feeling that he has that doesn't really have any big effect on his students or the world at the moment. And that's what drives him to do it. And he doesn't have experience mm-hmm. with, with, with theater. You know, he's not a director. He wasn't an actor. You know, he just has an instinct. And I feel like that's such a cool place to start a character of somebody who is has a big hill to climb in terms of he's not coming in with this sort of sense of knowledge and confidence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yes, he's a mentor to these kids and he's teaching them. But he also has as much to learn about what's going on here as they do, if not more. Right. And I love that tension. I love the tension of like at moments it seems like this was just the right thing for him to do. And at other moments he's like, my God, this was just a mistake. This whole thing was a mistake. I bit off more than I could chew and um, I want to crawl up in a hole. You yeah. know? And I feel like that's real. Like that's what life is and it's certainly what – putting on a play is like, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also sort of what life is like. So you mentioned that Lou uh, doesn't have a lot of experience when he takes over the, the drama department and he does kind of push aside a character played by Rosie Perez. And like, that's a very slow burn. You do play out over the course of the season without spoiling for the listeners, but you do play out like her feelings of having an underqualified white guy come in and yeah. like, kind of take her place. Right. But what were the conversations like around that, around like how you could keep Lou an interest, at least an interesting character, if not Mm -hmm. a sympathetic character, while still having him sort of 
enacting this thing that we're all much more aware of now, this idea that often people of color are pushed aside for, you know, white people or things like that. Like, how? Do, what were those conversations like in the writer's room as you were playing out the season? That relationship t- between Lou and Tracy, uh, the character played by Rosie, you know, it's like the cent- one of the central relationships in the show. Mm-hmm. And it's like this kind of push and pull, you know, between them. There are these moments that are like you feel like they're the greatest team in the world. And there are other moments where she's just furious at the whole situation. Yeah. And rightfully so. They both have their things that they bring that are um, really brilliant. Mm-hmm. And they both have their flaws. Right. You know, as you mentioned, it's not something that like, oh, in one episode or two episodes, it it's like everything is fine between them. Yeah. This is something that continues through the first season and will continue beyond that. It's a real tension. But I think the thing is that for Tracy's character is that, yes, she's been passed over. She mm-hmm. wanted to have that job and she deserved to have that job. But what Lou is doing is he is challenging the idea of what this theater could be in a way that is really uh, intriguing to her. Mm-hmm. And she starts to see, oh, you know, he does have something. Right. He is bringing something to the table. I still know how to do it better, and I have more experience doing it. But the fact that he's coming in with a vision and the fact that he's in, in a way that he hasn't admired down in the realities of – you know, putting on shows in a public theater where you have to recycle the the costumes and you have to do this, and every few years you do this show, and and you have to fight the district for an extra five hundred dollars, whatever it is that the normal things. He's coming in, you know, with this with this vision to shake things up and do stuff completely in a completely different way. She never would have dreamed of doing Spring Awakening. It just wasn't on their. You know, it wasn't on their their like uh, hit list of, of of shows to do. Right, and I think that that is the saving grace and the thing that makes her realize this guy has something. There's been some discussion over the show about it's inspired by a book. It's not based on a book. The person that the book is written about, he came out late in life. Mm-hmm. One of the things you've said is that when everything else from the book has been changed, has been adapted, has been changed into this show. So Lou at the center of the show, he has a wife, he has three kids. Uh, he, for all intents and purposes that we can see, he's a straight man. And one of the things you've said is that you sort of changed that because you you liked that window into the character. And the more that I watched him fight these battles, like mm-hmm. with people who didn't always want to do what he wanted to do and like kind of bang his head against the wall the more, I was like, I know a lot of showrunners like that. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering <laughs> like... To you, how autobiographical is this character? How much do you see yourself in him? Especially when you think back to like days when maybe you were on a show that maybe before Friday Night Lights, when you were on a show where you really had to fight those battles. Mm-hmm. And even in the early days of Friday Night Lights, before it became like this great TV show of all time, you know? The book is this beautiful book that I would call Drama High by uh, Michael Sokolov, mm-hmm. who actually was a former student of Lou's. It's absolutely beautifully written. It's a the story of Lou is absolutely fascinating. Lou is an incredible human being. I'm I'm lucky to now have to know him. But what I really kind of needed to do, and it's the thing, same way you I would approach, I did approach, and I learned from adapting Parenthood or Friday Lights. Um, 
that you really have to find ways to make it into a television show, (laughs) you know, and figure out, okay, how do I construct this? So it's going to give me the most ways in to tell a story that hopefully people will be captivated by these stories and these characters for a long period of time. So that was sort of what I was thinking when I was doing it. And, you know, it's why I wanted to be inspired by what that book did and by what Lou did and hopefully capture some of the um, essence of who he is. I had to move away from the sort of biographical elements in order to sort of figure out how to make it into a show. Who of your characters then have you sort of related to the most? Like who's the, who's the character that you felt like you really put a lot of yourself into? If you feel like answering that. Of all, you mean of all of the shows? Of all the shows, yeah. I pride myself on feeling like I've put myself into sure. all the characters. Absolutely. Um, the process of doing a show is about falling in love with your characters and hopefully you fall in love with all of them. I mean, I think the powerful thing that I think um, happens in shows like Friday Lights and Parenthood and Rise is that while you might think of one character being sort of the center of that story, that when you look at them, you know, there are multiple characters. You know, Friday Lights, there were, you know, not just the series regular characters. There was, there was I cared about Billy Riggins and Buddy mm-hmm. Garrity and, and, and tons of people. And I feel the same way about Rise. You know, when I see the scenes between Simon's mom, you know, over the course of the season— Stephanie Block is the actress who plays Patricia. She's an unbelievably talented actress. And I feel like this character, you know, she brings something to it that makes me feel like compelled to – I want to see her more. I want to watch her. And it's one of those things It's like you you try to get invested in in all of them. There's certainly things that felt more, you know, autobiographical – you know, like the story in, in Parenthood, you know, the story between um, Adam and Christina and their son, uh, Max, who has Asperger's and and other elements to that show where there were more sort of autobiographical elements weaved into that show than normal for me. Mm-hmm. That was like the nature of the subject matter of that show. Right. But no matter what show you're doing, you always try to find just like an actor would try to find themselves find a way in yeah for into the role you do the same thing and you try to find your way in that reminds me of some great writing advice i heard from your old boss Winnie holzman uh, mm-hmm. she was speaking about how she had trouble uh, she was writing like the third draft or fourth draft of the my so-called life pilot and she showed it to ed zwick and marshall herskovitz and was like the mom just doesn't work and they read it and they were like you haven't learned to love her yet and i was mm. like that's that's wow, really that's smart <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. um and that leads in nicely we have a clip from my so-called life so let's uh, let's take a listen to that talk when i was 12 my mother gave me my sex talk i'm not sure either of us has fully recovered now that you and jordan are um, oh my god mom please An- angela i can accept that you have a boyfriend i don't have a boyfriend fine A pal. A male pal. Whatever word you want to choose. The point is, I'm your mother, and I don't think you're ready. Mom, please. I don't think you're ready. But I have to know if this is what's happening, because I don't think that that I can keep you Mom, I beg you to stop. I I need to know that you're using... I mean, I I remember how this feels. I do, but, but... it's the times that we live in. Mom, please. Honey, 
I know you don't want to think about these things. I know that you think you're invulnerable. I don't but think that. You, you have, have to use some kind of protection if you are going to be. Mom, I'm not having sex, all right? Really? <laughs> so <laughs> that was, of course, the great, great Claire Danes and uh, Bess Armstrong. Bess Armstrong, right? yes. Bess Armstrong as, as Angela and Patty Chase from My So-Called Life. And that was your first job in television. What's like the big lesson you took from working on that show, which is uh, one of my mm-hmm. favorites. I, I, right. I just love that show. So I love that show, too. And I uh, that was what you call a lucky break to get to work on a show like that, um, as, especially as your first show. I mean, the big lesson, I, I mean, like I literally I have a million lessons I learned from that show. Um, it was, as I said, it's it was kind of like my graduate school. I mean, I would say if there was like one big lesson. It was something that I learned about Winnie and Ed Zwick's and Marshall Herskovitz's their basic um, approach to television, which is they didn't approach it as in the way that most people would approach doing a TV show. Mm-hmm. You're, you're shooting multiple episodes, one after the other, and it's, it becomes like a you know, an assembly line and they weren't approaching it as like, oh, we're going to get an episode out. They approached it as high art. Mm-hmm. They, every episode they sat down in the beginning and they were before, before a story was broken, before anything else. And they, the conversation was, well, what do we want this episode to be about? What do we want to say? They didn't never approached doing television as like, you know, we're doing X amount of episodes this season and we're churning them out, you know? Yeah. It was like everything was really considered and they allowed themselves to think of this as um, important, you right. know? And they allowed themselves to think of this as art. Right. And it was something that, you know, um, especially at the time, people didn't think of TV that way. No, no. You know, now they kind of do, finally, mm-hmm. but at the time they didn't. And so to me, that was kind of a revelation to me it made me think that what they're doing is amazing and that this form of television has such incredible potential and it and it you know obviously makes it incredibly exciting to start writing for a show like that because you feel like we could do something really wonderful here. Right, right. Do you remember writing your your first episode? Do you remember? Um, oh yeah. Uh, do you remember? Yeah. What were the, what were what were the big changes that were made by like by assume Winnie? Like when you turned in your draft, what what were like the notes? Do you remember those? Sure, I remember the f- very first draft that I wrote. You can imagine how terrified I was to deliver a script. I never written a television script before. Mm-hmm. So it was terrifying, the idea. And, and you know, they had just finished doing 30-something, one of the greatest shows in the history of television. So right. it was intimidating to hand them a script. And I remember um, I delivered the script, and Marshall was the first one who called me about it. And he said, you know, he gave me a bunch of notes. But the main note was you, is you have to go deeper. Hmm. That was, like, really uh, it's scary to me. And then I wound up doing another pass with his and Winnie's and Ed's notes and and with that overall note of going deeper. And, um, you know, I did that draft and I handed it in. And then Marshall called me and he said, uh, you know, my note is let's shoot this. <laughs> so it was like this terrifying moment because, you know, you feel like, oh, you, you've gotten your big break. Right. But now's the moment that, you know, you need to deliver 
where that big break really won't go anywhere other than getting to write an episode of one episode of television. You right. know? And so right. then I was able to to um, do that and then write several more episodes. And Winnie really took me under her wing. Mm. And I learned so much from her. But, you know, she would sometimes like we'd be working and, uh, you know, shooting and she'd say, oh, I'm going to stay later to I need to do a rewrite on whatever episode it was. And she said, do you want to come and help me? Mm. And I said, yeah, of course. And I, I suspect, and you could ask her, I suspect that she didn't really want my, my help. She just wanted somebody to be there to keep her awake. Yeah. <laughs> that was the help I was providing. But I literally got to sit here there with her in front of the computer and watch her rewrite a script and have conversations with her about why she was making every choice that she made. Mm. You know, and I got to sit on story meetings with Ed and Marshall and Winnie. And those are the things that I, you know, look, I carry them with me on everything that I've uh, I've done since. All the shows Ed and Marshall did, uh, 30-something, and then that show, and then the next, their next show was your first created uh, show, Relativity. Relativity and they did Once and Again. Once again. They're very low concept shows. It's, I feel like it'd be very hard to get them on the air now. Like your shows are generally like Friday Night Lights based on a movie and a book. Parenthood is based on a movie. Uh, Rise is inspired by a book. Like, do you have to have that grounding now to get a show like that on the air? Do you have to have like, well, we have this other thing that's been successful in another medium? Yeah. I mean, I think it's true that like I, I would say when I went in and pitched Parenthood, I've mm-hmm. always thought, I've always suspected that if I pitched that show – and called it something else mm-hmm. and didn't say it was based on a movie, I think I probably would have sold the pitch. But then my suspicion was is that it wouldn't have ever turned into a television show. I think it did help that there was, you know, there there was that source material. And certainly with Friday Night Lights, because the um the DNA of both the book and the movie is so in the show. Yeah. I think that is certainly something that you know, I just don't know if it ever would have existed right. if, if it if it weren't for the for the source material. Well, let's play our clip from Friday Night Lights, and I can I'm gonna bet that you can guess how it ends. Okay. <laughs> so. Every man at some point in his life is gonna lose a battle. He's gonna fight, and he's gonna lose. But what makes him a man is that in the midst of that battle, he does not lose himself. This game is not over. This battle is not over. So let's hear it one more time. Together. Clear eyes, full hearts. Let's go! Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose has become one of those, like, TV touchstones. Like, when did you know what you had with that? Like, I think, like, the... President Obama has said it. I feel like it's <laughs> it's become this cultural thing. So when did you know that that was a thing? You know, I, I'm not really sure that I knew during the course of the of the time that we were doing the show. You know, that it was going to kind of sort of continue on, and, and people would like use it in that way. You know, it was something that that Pete Berg wrote in the in the pilot episode it wasn't i, I don't it wasn't my phrase right right but with. you kept coming back to it oh know? we kept coming back to it <laughs> absolutely we kept coming back to it and you know one of the things that was that we had to learn with that was to be judicious with coming back to it you had to find those moments that were big and not use it in every episode and use it all the time because you know it makes it iconic in a way 
you know, um, you know, look, it's the words. It's it's Kyle Chandler saying those words. It's the faces of those players, you know, repeating them mm-hmm. as they're repeating them back to him. It's a combination of all those things. I mean, it's cool to see, you know, every once in a while to hear it being quoted or used in, in, in ways. Usually it's cool. <laughs> a couple of people have, have, have adopted it that, you know, um, it wasn't that exciting. But it's really cool to see it sort of like live on. Yeah. Yeah. That show was under the radar for so long. And now it feels like it feels like everybody I know has seen it. Like, have you had that experience of like it's been on streaming now for forever. People eventually get right. around to it. Like, do you feel like it's had the longest afterlife of anything you've worked well, on? Well, I think it's a, it was interesting because, you know, when the, when the show started, they had these beautiful promos, these beautiful, epic football promos that they did. And they were absolutely beautiful. And I think they really encouraged people not to watch the show because so many people were like, I don't, I'm not a football fan. You know, I had this experience when we first started doing the show. I was a chaperone on a, on a um, middle school um, trip it was like an overnight trip. And I remember people like it was like me and a bunch of moms mm-hmm. and the moms were <laughs> like, say, asking me, oh, what I was working on. And I told them about the show and I saw their sort of eyes gla- glaze over with boredom. And I said, no, 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 you don't have to like football to like the show. You would love the show. Mm-hmm. And I saw them like sort of smile at me kind of like with empathy, you know, feeling sorry for me, you know, this, this poor you know writer trying to sell the show <laughs> that they have no interest in. I think to me, the thing about Friday Night Lights was you didn't have to like like football to care about the show. You didn't have to have any kind of knowledge of football, yeah, or Texas or any of those things. You know, it it was it was so much just about these people and their lives, and it's so deeply felt. Yeah, and I think that message started to come out over time, mm-hmm. and um, to this day. I mean, I mean, how many years later is it? To this day, people are coming up to me and saying, I just watched it. Yeah. Um, just watched it. And now people are showing to their kids. It's really cool. You know, mm-hmm. um, a few years ago, somebody told me, you know, one of my friend's kids who was in college said, it's what everybody is, was watching at least mm-hmm. that year at, in colleges. So that's the great thing about TV right now. My daughter watches shows from 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So many, it doesn't matter to her. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be current. It's a great thing about, you know, that television in a way now lives on longer than it ever used to. Yeah. Like one of the hottest shows of the spring has been uh, ER. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, right off the air so long. Right. Uh, but we're coming into the end of the show. So that makes it a great time to ask you. I think Friday Night Lights has one of the great series finales. You won an Emmy for writing it. I'm normally somebody who likes less closure in a finale, but right. that finale is all closure and I love it. <laughs> uh, tell me about the process of crafting that episode in particular, because that must have been a tough one. Well, the thing that was cool about that is that we, you know, often when you end a show, you don't know you're going to end the show. Or if you do know you're going to end the show, you might know very late in the process. When the writers started the writer's room of that season, we knew that we were driving toward an ending. Mm -hmm. To me, it was all about setup. It was all about everything that came before. And that was really, um, you know, kind of the charm of that story is that final season of the show was so clearly all kind of, you know, leading to that. And um, by the time we get to that episode... It was sort of inevitable, and I really did want to do an episode that 
had closure. Yeah. You know, I wanted I wanted there to be an ending to the show. I didn't want it to be ambiguous. I, I felt like we had such a passionate audience, you know. It might have been a small audience, but it was so deeply passionate. So I felt like we owed that, you know, great ending, but also an ending that was really truly kind of an ending where you got to see not only where everybody got to, but sort of had a little window into where they were going. Were there characters who were particularly hard to wrap up that you found you had trouble finding the end of the arc for? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, as I recall, it's been a while now, as I recall, the thing that was tricky about the ending of the show was a lot of the characters that had kind of sort of left the show earlier in the series, mm-hmm. who we were going to try to sort of come back to and bring back at the end. And that got a little bit tricky, like how many people we would come back to, and we didn't have a lot of time right. to, to Space, observe yeah. them. So that was what was kind of, I, I remember thinking about a lot. You know, at one point we were going to try to be much more aggressive mm-hmm. and try to bring everybody back. At a certain point, we just kind of let go of that and thought, oh, you know, we're going to do what feels just right for, for the episode. We ask all our guests some of the same questions. The first one will be, who's the writer you've learned the most from that you've never met? They can be living or dead. John Steinbeck. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And uh, coming up uh, next is what's like the last book you read, movie you watched, TV show you watched, like the last pop culture thing that you did, and what did you think of it? Well, I was catching up on on the Americans. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. show that I really, I really love, and I'm excited. I know their final season's starting soon. Yeah, that's a show that I felt like I've wa- watched it from the beginning. But the more I watch it, and the more you know, the more that it's evolved, it's it's evolved into this really intimate show yeah in a way this intimate family show and show about family and and a marriage that i thought was really beautiful and finally do you go back and watch your old work and why or why not i don't um i did one time uh which was i think about two years ago and i watched my so-called life with my daughter Mm. and we watched it together because i just started to hear my daughter talk or and I almost kind of feel like I could hear her think mm-hmm. and I thought I just really wanted her to see that show and yeah. to see what was happening in Angela Chase's mind yeah and so we watched that together and it was really that was really a great experience watching mm-hmm. it well Jason thank you so much for your time the show rise is on NBC uh, it's at 9 p.m. I believe 9 p.m. on, on Tuesdays and uh, all of your other shows are on various streaming platforms thank you thank you very much clear eyes full hearts I think you're interesting would that be a better title let us know on Twitter and or email however the show is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf I'm the coach. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. And this show's producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and our studio are thanks to P3 Post in Hollywood, California. Our recording engineer, as always, is Che Brooks. If you could please rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, 
or Stitcher or Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice. That would be great. It helps us get listeners. It helps us get great guests. It helps us get the word out about the show. If you have something you don't want to say in a review, which why would you? Because we read all the reviews. You can email it to me at Todd at Vox.com or you can email it to the whole crew on the show at ityi.podcast at Vox.com. Itye.podcast at Vox.com. And as always, you can tweet at me at TVOTI, tweet at me at Tavoti. You know what? We're going to have another great guest next week. I'm not going to say who it is because they're not completely locked in, but we're going to do we're going to do something fun, I think, something a little bit more uh, top five list, uh, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. But if it's not them, it'll be somebody else from the world of entertainment and arts, media and culture, somebody who I think is interesting. But until then, please remember... I already said clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. Like I can't do it again. That would that would just be a that would just be too much. That would be I would be breaking all the rules. See ya. <laughs>